everyone to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. And this week, we are going to talk Troy Story. Now, don't be confused. It's not Toy Story. We're going Troy Story. And I know that we have lots of feedback from people who say, we love it when you guys... Hi, I'm good. How are you? No, fuck (laughs) off. Wait your turn. This is my show at the start because it's your story. So okay, just, so your intro. I, I'm wait. sorry. I just, I just thought it'd be, you know, a good time to say, oh, hi, Troy, or, or something, you know. You know, you know, know what I, you know what I'd love to throw in here? I'll edit this out, but I don't do the editing. So um, I won't edit this out, and I know you won't either. So don't confuse it with Toy Story. It is Troy's story. We'll say hello to him in a minute. It is but, Troy Story. It, every time I think about when I see that in, the, in our like little list of episodes and it's Troy Story, I think, Toy Story. I'll be Woody. There's or a both. snake in my boot. Oh, see, I like that. That's yeah. very good. Hey, just want to, we haven't done this for a while, just a very, very quick shout out to our socials, Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, Insta, all those little abbreviations of everything. Get on them. Have a look, go into our show notes, have a look at the link tree. You can go to all of it there, Patreon or Patreon, depending on what side of the border you were born. Give if you can, otherwise, don't. And that's okay too, because we love doing what we do. But today, Troy story. Welcome, Troy. There's a snake in my boot. My son had a um, Woody from Toy Story, the, the character, and we went all the way to Hong Kong Disneyland because he already had a Buzz Lightyear and he wanted to get a Woody doll as well so he could have, you know, one of each. And so we've gone all the way there to Hong Kong Disneyland to have a day at Disneyland, of course, but we also got him this this Woody. And we got back on the bus because we were living in China. We didn't have a car. And my son said to me, Dad, I can't wait to get home and play with my Woody. <laughs> <laughs> That's going on Facebook. True story. He was about six. Old enough to know better. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't think he's old enough to know better. No, no. I, I just wanted to throw that in because it's a very parenty type thing to say. Play with my Woody. Look, we all do it. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we. Well, we used to. I don't know about now. Oh, come on. No, come on. The closest I get into playing with it is sitting in front of the television with my hand down my pants. Yeah, and that's okay. It's like a, a friend's daughter once told me, an adult daughter, obviously she said, remote control is like an extension of a man's penis, isn't it? Because you'll, you'll sit there on the couch, one hand down your pants, the other with the remote, <laughs> with the remote in control in the other hand. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. right. At least one of them's battery operated. <laughs> All right. Next. There's a snake in my boot. <laughs> Fucking hell. I remember um, one of my bosses, it was when Obama was um, standing for presidency and he, there was this one of those pull goals that came and every time you'd pull the cord, it, it would just go, we can do it. We can do it. You know how he had that slogan, we can do it. And it pissed Was it we everyone. can do it? I thought it was, yes, we can. Yes, we can. Sorry. Oh, there's a snake in my boot. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. That's what my son's Woody doll used to say. When I, I'm, pi- I'm picking that up. Mm-hmm. I am picking that up. Okay. Yeah, we can do it. Yes. <laughs> yes, we can. 
That's so fun. We can, you... can do. There's a snake in my booth. I've got a favour to ask. Can you just um, edit that out? <laughs> no, I'm totally leaving it. Totally leaving it. As a matter of fact, I'm leaving this whole bit. This is great. I love it. Yeah, because we're about it. to go down the very dark. Oh, actually, this one maybe not so dark. Where we're going to go no. with this today? Yeah. No, but it won't. I be mean, too you dark. did actually before. You said Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Insta, and all the other abbreviations. And I was thinking. That was only one abbreviation. It was actually. And I actually thought that as I said it. Now, it's great that we're having an episode. Let's pick the shit out of everything that Brian says. <laughs> we can do it. Um, <laughs> you know why though? Because there's a snake in my boot. I think we're going for endorsements here, aren't we? I can mm. see it. It's going to be Miramar or whoever it was. Surely we can get what, 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 what did you just say? Miramar. What's Miramar? Isn't that like a film company? Oh, fucking Miramax. (laughs) There's a snake in my boot. Every time you say something wrong, I'm going to, it's going to be like, you know how the the morning radio, like they push the button and they get the catchphrase. That's going to be it now. I'm just going to go, there's a snake in my boot. Because you just said, when you said Miramar, I thought it meant Miramax. (laughs) No, you know what I meant? I meant Myanmar. Fuck you. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah, Miramar. Yeah. Yeah, it's like Myanmar. Boima. <laughs> All right, that's that's enough. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, no, we've picked the shit out of me, so it's it's perfect. I, I like it. I don't think we picked the shit out of you at all. Seriously, I think you did it all by yourself. I actually, I actually enjoyed it. Yeah. But back to back to Troy's story, or mm. Miramar, Myanmar, <laughs> or Miramax, whatever. There's a snake in my boot. <laughs> Where are we? Look, I'm, I today... I'm going to go back and listen to this when we edit, and it's probably not going to be funny at all. Like, no. I, I just wonder how people are actually. No, don't get me wrong. This could be great. And if you're listening to this now and we've left it in, we've taken a big risk. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it'd be good to pick up from where we left off with my story before, which was, you know, all about my little house church and became a church plant and all that kind of stuff. But before I jump into that, there's something that I've sort of missed in the recount of my story. And I think it was because it was just quite a dark and traumatic time that I sort of skipped over it. So I just want to sort of mention that in between the Revival Centre and Great Big AOG, I got involved with the early days of the rave scene in our little capital city where where I was living. And so I was going along to raves and without spelling it out too much in case my kids listen to this anytime soon, you know what you do at raves, right? You don't just dance and listen to techno, right? There's, there's other stuff that goes on. I just want to point out that I was at your place for dinner on Saturday night and we can be safe that your kids aren't going to listen to this anytime soon because they they did say that they weren't interested in the pod, didn't they? Oh, they totally, they totally do not care. No. Do not care. My son's probably up in his room playing with his Woody. You know, he doesn't care about my, my podcast. No, but he doesn't. But one day they will. And, you know, okay. So I was at a rave and by the time they're old enough to listen, well, they're going to know what this means. So I was very much into the scene and very much into everything that happens in the rave scene. So it wasn't long before my, my trips started to take on a religious tone. And, you know, at the time I was going to these raves and partying, what did Tom Tilly say? Off chops at 4am in the morning kind of thing. 
but at the same time, I was also occasionally going along to Great Big AOG with my friend, I don't know, what do we call him? Let's call him Zed. And he was giving me books to read and all these Pentecostal books, you know, the Kenneth Hagen books and all the, you know, Angels on Assignment and being fed all this sort of Christian narrative, this Pentecostal narrative that there's angels and demons everywhere. So it wasn't long, as you would expect, before they started to turn up in my trips. And would it even be fair to say had a bit of a psychotic break one night whilst off my chops and started to believe that there was a real angel and demon. I'd read this present darkness as well, by the way, in that, in that time and really believed that there was some sort of battle for my soul and the whole bit. So when I did come back to church, but, you know, rejoin great big AOG, a big part of that was my narrative that I had encountered the supernatural whilst off chops at 4am in the morning. After leaving great big AOG, I decided that I was going to have a ministry to the rave scene in in our city, that I was actually going to go back to the rave scene. And and as a matter of fact, someone had prophesied to me. It was um, my friend's father that did the exorcism and everything. Same night, he actually prophesied to me that you will go back. I remember the line. I'm going to put on the voice and everything. And he said, you will go back to those dens of iniquity and preach the gospel to, and he gave me this whole prophecy that this is what I was going to do. And I internalized that. I owned it. I was like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And even though I walked away from great big AOG and left it all behind, that prophecy suited, I guess, my belief in myself and what I was going to do. So I decided that I was going to start a mission or an evangelistic ministry to the rave scene in our city. And so I did. And I started long after Great Big AOG, though. This is after Baptocostal, and we started this home church, and you know that was going to become this this church plant. Some of the other guys in that group they bought into the idea that we were going to go and start this mission, and it wasn't like I had words from God that this is what we're going to do. It was nothing like that. It was just like let's do this, and so we started going to raves, and we started going to these. You know, we bought tickets the whole bit, and we went in and just like urban missions, urban missionaries is what we thought we were going into these nightclubs and into these raves and telling people about Jesus and telling people about God. But I think one thing that was going on was, you know, we talked about your authentic self and you hear the talk also in, when you talk about cults and when you read about cults and you hear people talk about a pre-cult self And I think for me, I think I had a sense within myself and I I look back now and I think this is entirely true, but at the time I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have been conscious of it. But I think that was the last time that I was me aside from the religion. And so I think the idea of going to these raves, while on the one hand telling myself that I was going to save these kids and bring them the message of Christ. I think what was really happening, Brian, was that I was actually going back to a point where I had last been more myself than I had been in a very long time. And it was like, I'm going to go back to these raves. And it was almost like I'm going to trace myself back to the point where I had actually been, yeah, I'd actually been me. 
did it did it bring you a sense of comfort? Like, we do you feel like you were going back to a comfortable place, a place that was a, it seemed natural. I mean, you obviously were telling yourself that you were doing it for God, um, and you've been given this prophecy, so that gives you a little bit of a go ahead. Hey, go and do it. Did did it wasn't easy. Was there any, I know you, you're Troy the evangelist, so generally an opportunity to evangelize is easy, but was this just an easy transition? Great question. I was thinking the other day when we did our interview with Andrew and he said, oh, I remember when you were the evangelist and I said, I actually wasn't a very good evangelist. And then I thought, so what was it that made me want to hold that label evangelist? And here's what I thought. And I actually believe this is true. And I would even say I was conscious of it back then. And that is to say, where does the, well, I'm going to ask you, Brian, where does the evangelist play in church or out of church? Definitely out of church. Out of church. And you know what? I hated church. Most of the time, I felt like I didn't belong. I felt like I didn't fit in. I hated the games. You know, a lot of these people that have been raised in it, they were just miles away from me in terms of who I was. And there was this pressure to conform to this way of being within the church. And I think a lot of the reason why I was an evangelist and involved in all the outreaches to the outside world was because I was more comfortable there. It's a really interesting insight. And I was just thinking as you were talking and I was always more comfortable in the church. I felt safe. I felt secure. I, I grew up without any boundaries. I did what I wanted from very young. And I, I think when I came into the church, like my, I've said this before, my life was a bit messy. I was all over the shop and I didn't quite know who I was, not, not just in a teenage angsty sort of way, but the church brought me some level of safety and I and I was terrified in some sort of way of being out of it so it's interesting we, we've got very different stories there well yes and no because I I do want to say that there was also that there was that sense of belonging and community and all that and of course that was appealing but I always felt like it came at a price like I had to diminish myself and who I really was and so I think that's why I was often wanting to be involved with people in air quotes in the world, because ultimately I could be myself out there. You know, when you and I would go and work with the street kids or, you know, even out the street team, when we go and evangelize and everything, I felt like that was actually, those people were more like me than the people back in, in church. It wasn't just about authenticity. Like you, I wasn't raised in it. And so the idea of pretending and playing a role didn't come easy to me. And I, and I think you can testify to that, that I would often push back against the expectations, you know, especially to play church. And I mean, look, it, it's funny because it sounds like such a contradiction after talking about Daffy Duck ties and 90s oversized suits and the, the whole bit. But at the same time, I really wasn't comfortable. And so, yeah, did I feel safe going back to the, or did I feel comfortable going back to the raves? Yes, in in some ways. But also I think there was some unfinished business there, that it was like going back to to the last time, as Bugs Bunny used to say, you know, I think I took a wrong turn at Albuquerque, he used to say, and it's like that, that I felt like this is actually where I was last myself. 
and so going back to these to these raves was about trying to find myself but i would never have said that at the time i was trying to win people to cheat at it oh and and you back at the raves you didn't have to wear your oversized boys to men type suit did you no it was back in the stussy or, or whatever whatever was big by then stussy it was definitely stussy is still a great brand and it's it's still a, a, around um I, I remember you looked like a raver yeah it's because i had been Totally. When I when I first met you, and I think that was the one of the attractions where people swarmed around you. You obviously your charisma, but you were a raver. You were different. You were definitely seen as someone from out there, out in the world. So it was definitely a safe place. You could see how easily you would have slotted back in there. Yeah, well, you remember there was a group of us. Yep. You know, there wasn't there wasn't just me. And I was thinking about that as well. Actually, I did bring a whole gang of ravers in at the start. In that sense, I think I was the good evangelist. But as soon as they cut me off from everyone, there was no one to bring in, you know. Anyway, I digress. So, yeah, I was doing this this, this mission to the raves. And so my good friend, um, I'm going to call him Paul, he and I would go. And there was another guy, I'll call him John. And so Paul, John and I, and then others would hear about what we were doing and they'd come with us. And like I said, we'd buy tickets to the raves. We'd go in. We'd start talking to people. We'd ha- we didn't have tracks we had little little businessy card style things that we'd give to people if you know if we started having conversations with them it was funny because i was totally judgmental against the whole scene it was just like this is so bad for you these kids are going to you know mess themselves up on drugs and yet at the same time i i think i had outgrown it in the sense that i didn't want to go and take drugs i didn't want to go and dance and listen to that kind of music and stuff but there was still something about it that said to me yeah, this is where you last knew who you were or at least had a better sense of of who you were. So we used to do that about once a month. We would go to a rave and we'd go all night. We'd turn up at 11 and go through till six in the morning and we'd talk with the kids and, you know, sometimes it was great. Other times we had real trouble starting conversations and we'd do the Pentecostal thing and pray for a good hour before we go and soften their hearts and all that. And then we'd get, get in there and people just weren't open to talking to us on some nights and we're like, oh, you know, the devil must be really hardening hearts tonight and and all that sort of talk. I had reached out by then to the Churches of Christ urban mission leader in, in our city and told him what we were doing and the church that we were, that we'd sort of started and everything. And he invited this to become part of the Churches of Christ formally right? We didn't sign a contract or anything, but it was just, this is part of part of it. We reached out to a Church of Christ in sort of a, a middle suburb. I don't want to say inner. If it had been inner, it would have been perfect, but it was, but it was not too far out, but it was sort of, you know, sort of mid-range sort of suburb. And they let us use their building for free. Um, they only had Sunday mornings. They were a dying sort of congregation. So they let us use their building Sunday nights. For raves? No, 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 for our church plant. Oh, why Why not have a rave there? Well, yeah. Could you imagine? Mm, be good. Yeah, we, and we called it pop culture because I went on a honeymoon with my um, then wife, as you do with a honeymoon, and she and I went to New Zealand and there was a shop there called Pop Culture. And it was cartoons and comics and all that kind of stuff. I thought it was brilliant. And then I thought, what a great name for a church. Not Care Force, not 
Planet Shakers, not Hillsong, pop culture. And I, and I think that again speaks to what was really going on in me at that time. I really wanted to just be normal again, you know, so I was working at Blockbuster Video and the whole bit and I was calling my church pop culture. And and I think that really speaks to where I was at and, and actually what was really going on at a sort of a, a deeper level. The urban mission leader of the Churches of Christ at the time, he offered me two days a week uh, working as an admin for his urban mission organization that existed within the Churches of Christ. So it wasn't the uh, the Churches of Christ urban mission group. It was a, like a parachurch organization dealing with urban mission that he was also involved in. So that was his way of saying, look, here's a couple of days a week for you, you know, so I could be be doing that for him. That was tied to uh, to an inner city church that, that he ran. And that church at the time was starting to get a bit of notoriety as being this sort of very lefty, really connected to the evangelical left, postmodern, authentic, you know, and, and that was that church. Now, why didn't we go there? Because we wanted to do our own thing. Paul and John and I wanted to, sounds like the Beatles, doesn't it? I was going to say that. Were you George or Ringo? Yeah. No, I was, I was whichever one was in charge, brother. Of course. And so, yeah. And so, we, yeah, we didn't join this, this inner city church. Instead, we did our own. Now, the big failing there was we were trying to do an urban inner city style thing out in a slightly outer suburb, and it was never really going to take off. And, and, and I kind of knew that, but it was just so convenient to have a building that we didn't have to pay for and all this this is what, 96, 97, maybe even before that, maybe 95, 96. I, I don't reckon it was too late in the nineties, was it? No, no, it wasn't. It was, it was about 90, 96 because it was after I got married and I got married in 96. So it was 96 into 97. Yep. We were trying to do really creative things like use videos in the services, which now is just a par for the course. And and certainly other people were doing it back then, but it wasn't very common. So we would actually show video clips of, you know, music or parts of movies and and then talk about them and then sort of do a cafe church style thing where we'd sit around and talk about them. And and this is really embarrassing to say, but for our praise and worship time, we use Christian techno. Wow. So you would dance to the Christian techno like a rave? Yeah. Yeah. That's I actually like that. Did you instead of communion, did you have like MDMA or GHB or how did how did that work? GHB, isn't it? GBH? It's GBH is uh grievous bodily harm. Okay. GHB so GHB is a real is thing. It's the drug. Oh, so I'll say to myself, there's a snake in my boot. I think you should. GHB is uh, otherwise known as fantasy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've heard of that. That was after my time. Yeah, so no, we we wouldn't, but we we found that our home group style thing was still rocking on, but we were really going against the flow. We were really against the grain every time we tried to do a Sunday thing. It just wasn't working. And people would show up and go, oh, yeah, that's interesting, whatever, and then disappear because there wasn't very many of us. And, and you know, I hadn't really done any sort of church planting. Like, you know, when we were listening to um, the rise and fall of Mars Hill and hearing all about this church planting stuff that they do, Bible college you know, exposed me to some of that, but really I didn't know what I was doing. Here we are, home group's nice and it's, you know, really meaningful. And and then we're doing this 
these outreach to raves and that was really cool. And when I look back, if I was still a believer now, I would have said that that would have been enough. You didn't need to do the Sunday thing, right? And it was probably, well, not probably, it was just too early to do it. But we would go to other churches and tell them about what we're doing and they would take offerings for us. So we went to some big mega churches that weren't AOG because there's no way in hell I was going there. But we'd go to them and talk about what we're doing and they, you know, take up offerings and stuff. And so we started being able to buy resources for our services, like, you know, video projectors and things and cameras that we could take out to, to, you know, video what we were doing at the, at the raves and stuff like that. And this is all before phones, right? So we didn't have phones that we could take. We started showing videos and we started showing secular music clips and bits of movies and rave music and it was different. And I think in some ways it was kind of ahead of its time because that whole cafe church thing really, I mean, maybe it was happening in America, maybe it was happening in other countries, but there was certainly nothing like that happening in our, in our place. And I didn't hear about it. And I, well, let me say, we didn't hear about it and then imitate it. This actually came organically from what we thought would possibly work. And again, in a home group setting, it did work and in existing congregations, it did work. But as a formula for growing a church plant, nah, it, it didn't work. It's, it's interesting. We, um, it was 96, so it was actually the same year. So I'd, I'd left Great Big AOG. I was at the Baptocostal and um, obviously very restless. And the I think he was the associate minister or the youth minister or something there. He, he really wanted to do something different. So we decided that we would do similar sort of thing. It was on a Saturday night. It was at the church and we we went all in. We went to a couple of local shopping centres, like big malls, and surveyed young people there going, hey, here's a bunch of names that we would like like to run by you if you were to get involved in a youth type thing, what would it be? And we thought we were really cool. We weren't. But a few of the names that we put forward, there was two of them, that came out as the most prevalent ones and it was the time around mad cow disease so it was mad cow and the other one was that Winona Ryder Ethan Hawke movie reality bites Mm. and the clear winner by a mile was reality bites like young people absolutely loved it but the youth minister was like yeah I don't like it I'm going to call it mad cow so anyway it, it got called mad cow and the same sort of thing on we'd play only secular music uh, we had quite a few musos involved they would speak to people have a contemporary message it wasn't a, it wasn't a preaching um talk about you know things that were quite on the edge for a church really talking about sex quite openly talking about the pressures for young people and it was pretty successful like for probably six months and we were getting i don't know between 100 and 200 people come and the reality was most were from other churches I think looking for an alternate youth group type thing but we were trying to reach out to people who were unchurched and and get them to essentially believe what we were deceived about at the time but it, it was an interesting time because I think there was a lot of really emerging attempts to try and connect with people and cafe church you're right I think it was more towards the late 90s that that started to, to come out it was 98 99 I was involved in a cafe church in 98 99 as well but um, yeah, it was interesting it was really a time of, of trying to 
throw things out there and try different things, wasn't it? Yeah, totally. And I remember looking back at Great Big AOG and seeing what they were doing and it was just more of the same. They just changed the service order and think that they were being innovative, like let's have the slow songs before the fast songs or let's, you know, let's have the prayer requests after the sermon. And I remember just thinking, no, we need to knock this whole thing down and start again. And I think a lot of it came from a real dissatisfaction with the religion, not just the services. But again, I don't think I would have said that. at the, No, in fact, I know I wouldn't have said that at the time. And I wouldn't have been conscious of that because I wouldn't have dared allow myself. But I was going to these, to these raves, telling people about Jesus, really heading towards my own walking away, really, is, is what was going on. Because by that stage, I started drinking again you know, just moderately. I wasn't getting drunk at all. What's that What's that verse about you can drink but don't get drunk? Yeah, yeah, you can convince yourself you're not drunk. <laughs> is that how it was? was that's it? that's yeah, what sure. the scripture is. The scripture is you're okay, brother, just convince yourself you're not drunk. Right, okay, praise the Lord. Mm. So the, the, the mission was going really well. The home group was going okay, but the Sunday services thing was not going well. And, and I just came to the point, Paul and I and John, we talked with each other and just went, this isn't working. And so the, the minister of this groovy, funky, inner city, lefty, postmodern church said to me, do you want to come and be my youth pastor? Because we don't have any sort of youth ministry. And I was like, no, no, I don't. I was completely over that. That was the last thing I wanted to do, you know, was to be a youth minister. I wanted to just exist. I wanted to be authentic and real and postmodern and all that kind of stuff. And so we did fold and rejoin that church, that inner city church, and continued on with the rave rave mission though. And people from that church started joining us, going out to the raves and it was the next step, Brian. Like I'd done the Baptocostal thing. Uh, you know, I'd done the Great Big AOG after the Revival Centres. I'd done the Baptocostal thing after Great Big AOG. I'd done my own little sort of church plant attempt. And now was this evangelical, slightly Pentecostal, but not really, this evangelical lefty postmodern, the minister is reading Kierkegaard and quoting him in the sermons and, you know, the whole bit. So... I was like, cool, this is this is where I'll go. As I said before, it was very lefty. It was very cerebral and intelligent, quoting philosophers, and they were quoting Jewish theologians like Martin Buber and these people, you know, and we used to laugh because it'd be like, oh, he said Buber. But it was just very, very different from what I knew. And again, it was one more step. But if you scratch the surface, fully evangelical belief in heaven and hell, the tenets of the basic creeds and, you know, Trinity, the whole bit, literal Adam and Eve, the whole bit. Maybe not a 5,000-year-old earth, but still there was, in fact, an, a, you know, real Adam and Eve, etc. But I remember going to one of my first services there and I took my then, she was then my wife or my girlfriend, one or the other, and she and I got there there was a guy leading the choruses, leading the songs, but they weren't choruses, you know, it was kind of just chilled out, almost 
inner city cafe kind of kumbaya. I think it's closest that you would have got to the what was then the Jesus movement in the 70s. It was really like that. And so the guy's up there with no shoes on and he's and he's leading the songs. And we got in the car and we're driving back. And I want to save the stories about my ex-wife and I and how that all broke down for another day. But I got in the car and I said, wasn't that amazing? And she's like, hmm. And I'm like, did you see that guy had no shoes? And she goes, I know, unbelievable, right? And I'm like, yeah. And I was like, isn't that great? And she's like, what? No. What's wrong with him not wearing shoes to church? And she had, you know, come from this full-on Pentecostal background. And I was actually thinking, this is wonderful that we go to a church where not only are they not wearing Daffy Duck ties, they're not even wearing fucking shoes. Everyone knew that Jesus wore Birkenstocks, though. So I, I feel that this guy was maybe a step too far. It was just... One of those moments that I'll always remember that that was a big different point of differentiation between me and my then wife or my then wife and me, to be more grammatically correct. But she was alienated from it she, by it. She was against the idea of him not wearing shoes and I was embracing it. I just want to sort of go back a little bit. What's going on for you at the time? Like here you are, you're, you're trying to rave a church. That hasn't worked out overly well. You've gone back to the the parent church, sort of started becoming involved there. Do you have any recollection that uh, that you were aware of what was going on for you? No. No. So at the time you're trying to maybe skate both worlds, try to understand how close you can get to your old life and a place you felt safe, do you think? Yeah, well, that was the spirit of that church. You know, a lot of people said they were too worldly. They were too liberal. You know, and as I said, when you scratch the surface underneath, definitely all those basic tenets of Christianity and everything were there. But as the minister said to me once, he said, our church is where people come and they'll either find a home here or they will drop off the edge of Christianity. It's like a last stop for a lot of people. So so I think that's what I liked about it. It was about trying to have your cake and eat it too. It was like, I'm going to be a Christian, but I'm also going to go and see Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet and not feel bad about it. Or I'm going to go and see Pulp Fiction and then come back and we'll have a discussion about it at church. No, you'll have a fucking discussion. You're trying to obviously work out. You're not too far away from it all sort of falling over. I was still years away. I was still years away, to be honest. Okay. But, so, but, you're, but you're right. I was dancing right up to the line. You said before they were a post-modernist type church, as post-modernity thinking. Post-modernism is very much about your reality is a, a subjective concept, that your truth may not be my truth. Was that something they embraced? Because you were saying they were also quite fundamentalist or evangelical. Yeah, that, that's where it was a contradiction. Brian, because the minister liked those terms like postmodern and authentic self and generation X and all that kind of stuff that was that was being said back there in the sort of mid to late nineties. But when it came down to it, there was still an absolute truth. And he saw postmodernism being more something that was going on in the world and something that a lot of us had been raised in through 
pop culture and through our experience, but it wasn't God's best for us, if you know what I mean. So he was sort of catering to the world to reach the world, but ultimately he didn't consider that that was the, the best path. So he, and he was all about urban mission, all about urban mission. So if we're going to reach these people, we have to be as much like these people. And he used to talk a lot about incarnational mission. So if we're going to be urban missionaries, we need to become like them, you know? So it's all about wearing the the right clothes and eating at the right restaurants. And it was, it was have your cake and eat it too. Basically what it was is it was a Christ, an expression of Christianity where I could come closer to who I really wanted to be and come closer to who I actually was than anything I experienced up to, to that point, Revival Centers, Great Big AOG, Baptist or any of them. It's a lot of veneer though. I mean, if, if you're saying that you scratch the surface and underneath it's evangelical, it's fundamentalism, whatever it may be, was the, the point to look, feel, relate to those out there in the world, but then get them back and get them believing? Of course. Yeah, it was urban mission. That's exactly what I was saying. It was, it was all, all about urban mission. It was all about bringing them in. But interestingly, the majority of the church had not been saved through the church. They were all refugees from other places. Yeah, okay. And so the other thing that made us really hip and cool is that this church had an exodus mission or an exodus ministry there. So there was a lot of people there who were struggling with their sexuality. It was not great big AOG style. People could be a lot more open about it and a lot more embracing of it but ultimately they were trying to change people to not be gay. And, you know, that wasn't the whole church. It was probably about a third of the church, but we were all embracing those people. That, yeah, come on in. You know, Jesus loves you and Jesus loves you even though you're gay. And by the way, he's going to make you straight soon. Praise the Lord. So this is the same place that uh, Andrew was talking about was one of the most traumatic um, events in his life. Correct. Times in his life. That yep. was it. Yeah. Exactly right. That was the place. And that, and I did see him there one day as, as he was on the way out, I think. Yeah. And after our call with him, I actually rang him and said, I remember that time I saw you, you know, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry I didn't give you more, but I had nothing to give him. I had nothing to give him. Anyway, so here's, here's another part to this story. Guess where the leaders had... I don't know if they'd been saved there, but guess where they had sort of all come from? Disneyland. Great big AOG. Of course. So years before, they had been at Great Big AOG. They'd been involved in the in the youth group and in the church and they were attending and the whole bit. And then they started to have these fundamental differences of opinion with Great Big AOG and turned around and left then went to another smaller Churches of Christ and then, you know, grew up in the Churches of Christ hierarchy and then started their own church and, you know, yada, yada, yada. So that brought me a lot of comfort, Brian, that they actually had great big AOG experience. And what was really interesting is the stories that they were telling about great big AOG to me were the same stories that I had experienced and seen six months ago but they were having these experiences six years ago. It's interesting though, like you say that they had fundamental differences. I wonder through the lens of today, 
whether you still see them as fundamental differences or were they just the differences that were the veneer, that once you scratch through that veneer, the fundamentals were the same? No, I, I genuinely think that they were coming from a, a quite a different place. The beliefs were the same, right? Not angels and demons and carry on, but, you know, the, the fundamental tenets of Christianity, those evangelical doctrines, they were identical. But they were a lot more authentic and they were a lot more about being themselves. And, you know, the very people that Great Big AOG wouldn't tolerate, these were those people and, and this church that they ran were full of those people. They were freaks. We were all freaks, but we were evangelical freaks. And so liberalism, liberalism was still the enemy. Liberal theology and, you know, radical, radical liberalism was just, no. And there was a lot of that in the churches of Christ. So that was a very, that was a much more real enemy to us than it was in Great Big AOG because, you know, liberalism was out there, what the heck, but this was something that you actually had to deal with when you were in the churches of Christ. Because I was putting in my ministerial credential because I was, you know, running the church and I had to make some comments about what I actually believed. And the minister of that of the church that I was in, he was coaching me on what to put in there to keep the liberals happy so they would give me a, a Churches of Christ credential because you couldn't be too fundamentalist, at least in the, in the Churches of Christ in that state at that time. I think that was something definitely across the Churches of Christ, um, the ones I was involved in afterwards. Well, quite similar. I mean, but again, and the reason I asked the question before, once you scratch the surface, the fundamentals were the same. There was just different expressions of it and there was different Correct, yeah. to different tolerances. But again, it was all the same in the end. Like if you ask those hard questions around belief, like post-modernity wasn't true. I mean, in terms of you could have your own truth and the, uh, your truth was just as valid as their truth. I mean, there was one truth. So... I sort of, I get a bit cynical about that. No, and, and fair enough, 100%, you're right. Someone pulled me aside one day, said, hey, do you and your wife want to come over for dinner? And so we went to their place. They were a young couple. And they started talking to us about some of their concerns with this church that we're in. And they actually used the word cult and said it was a bit culty. And, you know, and I was just, oh, you don't know cult, man. You know, let me tell you about the Revival Center. You know, this is not a cult. But this, this group that we're in now, as I said, it was a long way from the Revival Centre, a long way from Great Big AOG. But there were aspects of it, like a lot of people lived in what they call community, which means they lived. a lot of people lived in shared houses with other people from the church. So what that meant was, even if you were married and had kids, you would take some other people from the church in so that they lived in these sort of great big shared houses. Well, they weren't necessarily great big, but you know what I mean? They were these shared house sort of situations. And what that does, if you think about it, is you're seeing everyone on Sundays and then, you know, there were, there were home groups as well. And then you lived with everyone from church. So in, in the sense, what they called community was, and like I said, it was that sort of Jesus people kind of thing. And that's what I liked about it. But I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I could just smell it. This is like, no, nah, this is too much, you know? So even then I was resisting some of what they were presenting and I would just go along to the services. But I got, I got asked to preach 
And so I was sort of, you know, every few months I'd get to preach and it was received really well. I do, you know, sermons on racism and how Christians shouldn't be racist. And you'd love it, Brian. I was a real lefty. I think I was a lot of, in a lot of ways, I was preaching against the things that I'd seen in Great Big AOG and the revival centers, but I'd never name it like that. You know, I'd preach against racism or I'd preach against sexism or I'd preach against familyism. This lifting up of the family as, you know, the way that the evangelicals own, think that they own the family. And, and I just thought familyism was bullshit. That's actually not what the Bible taught. And by this stage, I was also doing that, that course at the M University, the, the religion and theology course. And that was the one that the minister said to me, don't do that, you'll lose your faith. And so I'm being fed all this anti-evangelicalism, this liberal theology, this liberal beliefs. And I guess my relationship with that church started to fracture as well. I don't know how much further to go with this conversation because I'm leaving a big piece of this conversation out, which is my relationship with my wife at the time. And I do want to dedicate an episode to that because that has to go right back and then bring it up to this point. But I will say that it was at this church that I had my breakdown. And it was that, Brian, it was a breakdown. It was an emotional, spiritual, psychological breakdown where I think years and years of fundamentalism, cultishness, it all just caught up with me and it all just stopped making sense. What did it look like? What's it, what did the breakdown look like? I hit a wall. I just hit a wall and I could not go any further. In, in your beliefs, in your emotions, in everything? Not so much in my beliefs, although it was starting to happen, but definitely in my emotions. I got ridiculously depressed, like really bad, like medicated depressed. And it just stopped making sense. Was this almost like the last stop on the train line, this place, for you? For evangelicalism, 100%. Yep. But for religion and belief, no. That said, I think there was a lot of denial that it actually stopped working for me there, but I continued on trying to make it work without, oh, I don't know, that's really, really tough, Brian, because I had eventually stopped going, but I held on to the label and said that I was still a Christian. And, you know, we talk about that tooth decay. The veneer was all still there. And I dared not say it out loud because I was really afraid of hell. It wasn't conscious that I was saying, oh, I'm not going to say that out loud because I don't want to go to hell. I wasn't even thinking it. But it's looking back years later, I go, oh, that's, that's what was going on there. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does make sense. And I, I think your fear of hell is something experienced by many, many people. There's many people who are listening who I think are still scared to to speak out what they believe because they've got that fear hanging over them. Uh, when you're indoctrinated with that from day dot, that if you don't live up to a certain expectation, a certain belief system, you're going to hell. That's an incredibly powerful thing. During this time, what what's happening for you? What's it? You were saying you are alluding that you know, there was stuff going on in your marriage. There was certainly different responses to the things happening there at that church. What What's happening for you? What's happening for you, yourself, as a couple? 
Well, the thing about my my wife at the time was that she had been raised in the AOG and mostly at Great Big AOG. Her father was a pastor there. She was pretty badly hurt by what she'd experienced at Great Big AOG. She'd seen a lot of the the games and a lot of the crap and her father wasn't always treated well and she was pretty bitter. And I don't say that in the evangelical way of saying, oh, she was just bitter. I mean, she was. She was really hurt and she was very, very damaged and very upset. And she had her own shit at home as well, you know. Her mother had come from a revival centre style church and, you know, got into great big AOG and it wasn't a revival centre church but it was very similar, British-Israel racist kind of thing and her, her father had been raised in, in the AOG in, in another country and they'd come to Australia they had been involved with Frank Houston and, you know, we spoke really highly of him. And when we decided to leave Great Big AOG, they were very upset. And they were very upset, I think, at me for thinking that I had pulled her away from Great Big AOG. And there was truth to that, but she wanted to go as well. She and I came together because we both shared this despising of of great big AOG by that stage and you know of course we're attracted to each other and as I said you know used to make out go parking in erogenous zones never crossed the line talk about purity culture we never crossed the line never happened you know but she wasn't gonna have a bar of it excuse the pun she wanted to go but she was really really damaged as was I so when we went to this, this other church, her heart wasn't in it. And when I was pl- trying to plant my church, her heart wasn't in it at all. In fact, she didn't come along. She used to just stay home and I'd go off and, you know, run my church and she'd just stay home. Do you think that's because her reason for leaving was to leave whereas your reason to leave was to leave and do something different? Yes, that's exactly what it was. What she really wanted was she wanted to be, in air quotes, normal. She would take me to Ikea and look at furniture and I was just like, oh, look at furniture, you know, or she'd take me to display homes and look at houses and I'm just like, no, what are we looking at this for? Jesus is coming back. And I mean, I wouldn't say that. And so when we joined this smaller, this smaller, funky, cool church, she didn't buy in. She didn't believe it. She actually thought if you're going to go to church, it needs to be a mega church. It needs to be a tongue talking, shoe wearing church. So that started to pull us in different directions. Before we got married, I was like, let's live in a city. She's like, yeah, okay, let's, let's live in a city. Okay, cool. So we get married and then she's like, okay, let's get a house out here in this far eastern suburb. And I'm like, no, remember we'd agreed we were going to live in a, nah. And it was almost as if she had told me everything I wanted to hear to get married. And then as soon as we got married, took it all back. Do you think it was a, a safety thing, though? That, oh, totally. That it was intentional or it was more so, oh, my God, okay, I've got that. We're married. I, I, I'm now going to revert back to my safe place. Totally. That's exactly what it was, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not accusing her of being bad. I'm just saying that that's, that's what happened. And so I'm thinking that I'm marrying this person that's heading in this direction. And as soon as we got married, it was like, now let's revert back to this middle-class suburban existence and I'm trying to run a mission to the raves. We shouldn't have got married. 
We shouldn't have got married. And I'm not just talking from a religious perspective. We were so different, so different and wanted different things and were heading in different directions. But I think I had become for her a security. And in fairness, she had become that for me too. And I think we started to develop a sort of a codependent toxicity. I'm not saying that we didn't care about each other. I'm not saying that we weren't, you know, into each other. We were. But it, it just all happened too quick. And, you know, that sort of Pentecostal evangelical, we've been going out for six weeks, time to get married. The day I asked her to marry me, she said, yes, we went to some, you know, some hotel and went up to the umpteenth floor restaurant and I asked her to marry me and everything. And then she got home and she said to her mother, I was there and she goes, Troy has little Mary. I just howled. And it's like, uh, is this the happiest day of your life? You know, and there was one indication that this was not what she wanted either. But I was somehow for her security. And a lot of people used to look at the way we fought and and people used to talk to me and say, this is not right. And so I went to her a number of times and said, X person said, because I wasn't happy with the way we were fighting either. And I said to her, oh, X person said, and she was like a stallion on her hind legs. Oh, how dare he say that? You know, I'm never having anything. You're never having anything to do with him. And it was just like push, push, push. And I was, and I backed down. And so I knew that I couldn't talk about the fact that we were having trouble with it, with our relationship because she wouldn't tolerate it. I, I remember the way you fought. It was, it was, it was entertaining. Yeah. So I remember <laughs> once with you and your then wife, we went traveling somewhere and she and I got out of a car in the middle of the countryside and just screaming at each other. And I, yeah. I remember this and, and she was going to catch a train home from this That's right. That's country. Right. Yeah. Oh That's yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were fighting so much every time we'd get in the car, we were fighting so much and we're like, why is it every time we get in this car, we fight? Of course, what it was, was we'd get into a confined space and be forced to deal with each other, right? But of course, we were Pentecostals and so we started to think there must be a curse on the car. So we told her father, because it was a Japanese car, it was a Honda, so we thought maybe it had Buddhist demons or something. This is all true, I'm not making this up. Couldn't make this up. And we told him and he went and got some oil and anointed the car spoken tongues over the car and broke the curse, you know, the Buddhist curse over this, over this Japanese, late model Japanese Honda Civic. It was a nice car too. But it, there was nothing wrong with us. It was demons in the car. I started smoking again and her parents just hated that. It was so funny because they'd be like, fine, if he's going to smoke, but he can't bring the cigarettes in the house. So the next time I'd come, I'd come straight in and put the cigarettes right on the kitchen counter because they were leaders at Great Big AOG still. And I'm going around there for dinner while going along to this lefty, funky church where you could smoke, you know, and we were drinking. We wanted to have booze at our engagement party and her mother just lost it. But we did because we paid for it ourselves. I, I, I remember that too. Bringing Satan sticks into the house, I mean, I can understand. I mean, smoking was it was incredible how... Um, people frowned upon it wasn't how it? demonic it was, it was. Uh, yeah literally was, yeah. demonic yeah. yeah people would have demons of, of cigarettes and demons of smoking so she was under a lot of pressure from her family that i was bad because let's face it according to their way of seeing the world i totally was you know i was liberal i was 
you know, I was no longer speaking in tongues. I was going on triple J and bagging the revival centers and Pentecostals and, you know, they hated everything about it. And they would force us, or at least my wife forced me to go to their place every Monday night for dinner. We had to go. And I was like, uh, and then it was like the guilt that was thrown on me for not wanting to go every Monday night to my in-laws house. I mean, look, put church aside. Not everyone wants to do that especially when you don't have a great relationship with, with these people. We went to marriage counselling because the, the minister that was marrying us off said, look, you need to go and get some marriage counselling. And we, if we had been given a mark, we would have failed. We would have failed marriage counselling. I remember once they said, everyone stand up in a room, in the room, because so, there's a whole heap of people in this marriage counselling course. And at the very back wall means that you don't get along with your in-laws and the very front wall means that you have a fantastic relationship and anything in between so stand where you want to stand I went right to the back and stood against the wall didn't even have to think about it she was in tears in the marriage counseling you know she's fighting back the tears and everything then we got in the car and she's like how dare you humiliate me and you know and I'm like but this is the truth this is actually what was going on I was miserable around her family and a lot of the time because of the fighting, I was miserable around her. As the marriage approached, about two weeks before I went and saw her, an AOG pastor friend of mine and cried and told him, I'm miserable, you know, I'd, and, and he's like, oh, okay. Mm. And really, he gave me absolutely no counsel, nothing. And so that was great. I'd already spoken to the minister of our little funky church by then and he told me that he didn't think I should get married and when I tried to tell my fiance about that she got up on her haunches and attacked and everything and so it was like and, and and I kind of felt that I was trying to keep her in church I was trying to keep her in God and if I let her push all these godly people away and stop going to church she's going to have nothing so it was kind of like oh okay I'd back down to keep her in church like I was responsible for her salvation that's really how I felt. You were head of the house, brother, so you were. I remember one day talking to, trying to talk to her and say, look, we just fight all the time. This is not good. And, and you know what her response was? Do you trust God? And I said, yeah. And she goes, well, don't you think God would have spoken to you by now and told you that you shouldn't, have been, you shouldn't be marrying me? Has he spoken to you? And I, um, um, no. Well, there you go. And I was like, okay. And of course, you could look at it at another through another lens and say, God had sent all these people to tell me <laughs> that this is not looking good. And so I caved. And and you know, years later when I'd tell the story about my first marriage, people would say, So why'd you marry her? And it was like, because we had just left Great Big AOG. I was a mess. And I think we sort of trauma bonded. Maybe not, but I think that's what happened. I'm no expert. The thing to do, though, was get married. I mean, that's the thing. And, and I mean, some of that's a reflection on purity culture too. Like you, if you were not inside the church, you might shag a few times and go out. And be and, done. And be done and understand that you, you're not a match, that you're not going to work, and there you go, you go your own merry way. But purity culture says... Just hang on to that and uh, then take it into marriage and then we're going to judge you if you don't work that out in your divorce. Because, you know, I mean, I I 
don't think that uh, my ex-wife and I should have got married either. And I was definitely at fault. I, I was possibly almost like the version of your ex-wife there. I was like, we've got to get married. We're going to do this and we're going to do great things for God. And I'm going to be a minister. Praise the Lord. Praise yeah, the Lord. Absolutely. Yeah. And and that was, you know, my convincing of that. But I... You were a cock, were you? I was an absolute <laughs> cock. And, and I remember... That wasn't wrong. I I was a cock. And, and you know, I, I definitely think I fought and what not think. I know that I forced it because it's what you did. You got married. You didn't date just to date. You dated to get married. Um, and you would work it out because you would trust God, let go, let God, all that sort of rubbish. But the reality is we probably shouldn't have got married. In the end, I've got two amazing daughters from that marriage and – they're the things that I hang on to that that marriage had a purpose. But I think overall that marriage was was you know, largely a disaster that went on for 16 years and uh, there was probably a couple of good years in that and the rest was sort of switched on and off and it wasn't fantastic. But I get to that place of saying that because it's what you did and I think you did what you thought you should have done as well. Brian, 100%, that's a big part of it. Okay, that that was the track and that was the the evangelical track. But I think it was deeper than that for her and I. I think we were both really damaged individuals. I mean, you've heard my story up to this point. I was damaged and and so was she. And I think that we came together and we understood each other. But pain, mutual pain, shared pain, understanding of pain doth not a marriage make. So I went and saw this pastor, this AOG pastor, friend of mine, who was sort of, you know, a little bit more mellow and everything, even though I wasn't going along to to the AOG churches. And I cried. He just sort of said, you'll be right, chin up. And then the day before the wedding, I rang my mum and cried and said, I shouldn't be doing this. And she said, oh, it's okay. It's just cold feet. And she she told me years later, I wish I'd told you that day. Let's call it off. And I should have, but I didn't. Nobody's fault but mine. And I can remember the wedding day, my brother pulled out a couple of cigars because I had my brother as my, my brothers as my groomsman. My, one brother was sort of a, a Baptist, but not a very good one. And my other brother was still raving. And so they pulled out cigars and we were we lit up. We were about to light up the cigars, and my ex, my wife at the time, saw we're about to do that, and came over and just scolded me in front of my brothers. Don't you dare! There are people from you know my parents' friends are here, and you know all this kind of stuff. And and I can remember the guy, the photographer was taking photos, and when those photos came out, I could show you that exact moment. In that photo, it was like. Yeah, that's the moment where I realized that I've done the wrong thing here today, that I shouldn't have done this. And it wasn't about the cigars. It was about getting married. So you don't think it was about the fact that you didn't have cigars for everyone? No, I don't think it was that at all. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's right. I just, just wanted to be clear on that. To us as Pentecostals, as evangelicals, marriage is a death sentence. You cannot get out of this marriage until someone dies. My depression set in pretty soon after that and I was wrestling with depression a lot because I felt trapped in this marriage and 
I got on antidepressants and stuff. And then I was, you know, planting churches and she wasn't coming and just the writing was on the wall. How about I stop there? How about I stop there? Because I want to tell you what happened next, but it really needs its own episode because it involves cults and it involves did not quite Bill Clinton adultery, but getting close. And there was a whole heap of shit that went down that brought everything to a head for me where I ended up leaving the marriage and leaving church. But I want to tell that story maybe even in our next episode, Brian. I don't know how you feel about going there, but... I think, I think we can do that. And I'm, I'm drawing some conclusions already saying, you know, not quite Bill Clinton type adultery brought it to a head. I think there's some... Um, and a lot of things some... went down. Did you hear that as well? Yeah. I, said that. yeah. I think there's yeah. clues, clues in well, there. Well, can I tell you? No, you're wrong. Yeah. I I did not do anything like that. But I, I know. But, you know, you remember the old, if you do it in your heart, you, yeah. you might as well have done it kind of thing. I, I, I did I did a lot of shit in my heart. Yes. I do, I do think it is a, a good point then if it is another story to pick up and take it to there. And it sounds like it'll be a painful one as well. I mean, today, I'm sure there was some pain in today's for you. It's never easy. It doesn't matter how much you may not want to be in a marriage or trapped in a marriage. I think when you are getting to that point where you know the marriage is coming to a point of ending, uh, sometimes you can self-sabotage it. Sometimes you can wish it would end. And there's many, many things that can happen yeah, well, that's that. That is what happened, and we'll get to that. Uh, can I also say, as as a sort of a closing point, I do not see my ex wife as the bad guy in this story. That I was the good guy and she was the bad guy. Not at all. I actually think she was a victim of evangelicalism, Pentecostalism, purity culture, pastor's kid. Just she she had everything going against her in terms of you know wholeness and wellness, um, as did I. And I think we were both victims in this story. I really do. I think at times we were both aggressors, but 90% of the time we were both victims. And so I just want to say that, that I've told the story of my perspective and what was going on for me at the time. But looking back, she, she's, she was not a bad person. She was just really damaged. Yeah. And look, I think the reality is you can only do what you can do with the toolkit you've got at the time. And, you know, that toolkit sometimes can have lots of things missing if we're not equipped well, because we know evangelicalism certainly can strip some things away, which should be natural tools for us to help in deal with shit that comes up. But there can also be Lots of damage along the way, which no tools can fix. So it's it's a tricky, tricky space, which I think we will uh, definitely unpack more as we go into the next phase of this story. Cool. See you in a fortnight. See you then.